morning, ladies. Thank you, Elisa, for reading to us from the scriptures. It is such a joy to see this packed room. How wonderful. We were planning on taking out some of the tables, but good thing we didn't, right? Um, this is such a joy for us. And, you know, I was thinking about this last night. If you are a... First of all, it's so great to see so many new faces here. I love it. Um, last night, before I went to bed, I was thinking, you know what's funny? In the past three or four years, if you're a seven-mile road woman, you have been to three retreats. And I was thinking about this. Before we were done with the last one, we went up to our pastors and said, um, actually, can we have another one? Actually, can we have three more, like, mini retreats? And our pastors have been so great. Let me tell you why this is ironic. Our men at the church have had one in the past seven years. So I don't know if it's that we ask them so quickly, so before they even get to say no, uh, they just say yes. Or it's that they think, y'all women need help. You go hang out, read the word, do whatever you need. We'll make it happen. Or if it's just that they are so gracious, and I want to say it's the last. Because we, as women, are celebrated here at this church. Our men encourage us, support us. And just to give you a little glimpse, you know, usually you find women working behind the scenes, right? Women are, I don't know, making coffee, setting up chairs, doing all this stuff. This happened because so many of our men put so much work into it. Uh, our tables were set up by Brett, who is our office manager. He set up this, I mean, it takes up a, time, a bit of time. Uh, our friend Charles was here. He, this man wakes up at four every morning to go to work, but he was here on a Saturday to come help up, uh, set up the sound system. And then, and then some of our husbands were willing to take care of our children, and just on and on the list goes, and we're grateful for our pastors. We are so grateful just to be able to have this time. And then us as women, we love food, we love fellowship, and we love hanging out. So here we are, and we'll have three more of these. Well, two more after today. We are so excited about these mini retreats. Uh, now, why did we decide to study this book? I don't know about you, but minor prophets are not books that I turn to. I usually go to the Psalms. I go to the New Testament, read the Gospels. I'll go to the Old Testament, but not the minor prophets. Most of us didn't even know how to pronounce Habakkuk. When I told Ajay we're going to study Habakkuk, he said, Habakkuk? I said, uh, I don't know, whatever. Uh, so then... I decided to go with what Colleen says. She says Habakkuk, and I guess Elisa does too, so Habakkuk it is, okay? But I might go back and forth. So we decided to study this book, and here's this book. It is such a cool book. There's 66 books in the Bible, and this one's sort of tucked in in the middle. You will almost miss it if you don't know where it is. Um, and as we were studying it, it is such a beautiful nugget of a book in the Bible. And initially, as you read it, you may think, that this is a book that applies to a different people, a different time, just in the past. But as you keep reading it, you're going to see how much this book applies to our time. Now, not too long ago, I had the chance of walking with a friend of mine who was going through some very difficult struggles in her life. She had serious issues with her health, a broken marriage, and then just more and more things that started to happen in her life that made it seem that her life was just getting from bad to difficult to worse. 
And as long as I've known this lady, I have admired her faith and her love for Jesus. Most people wouldn't even know the amount of pain she lives in every single day, and she smiles through it. You just would not know. But then as things started to fall apart in her life, I got a chance to watch her from a distance. I wanted to see what would happen to her, her, to her faith in God. Would it waver? Would she fall? Would she lose hope? Have you ever been in that similar place? Now, we live in a country where we have so much freedom. We can have religious freedom without having any fear of persecution. We are allowed to speak freely. But still, we live in a broken world, a world that is filled with sin, a world affected by sin. And I wish that I could say that it's the people who don't believe in God who are guilty, that it's out there. But sadly, as we all know it, sin has permeated the walls of our church, permeated God's own family in so many ways. If that sounds familiar to you, you're going to see that Habakkuk is not going to be very foreign to you either. As we study this book, your eyes will be drawn to a God who has remained the same throughout the ages. A God who is sovereign over all things. A God who is in control of history and is in control even today. When you go home today, I encourage you to read this book in its entirety. It's super short. It's only three chapters long. But when you read it, like many of us have, you are going to be encouraged. And I know the Lord will bless you. You're going to meet a man who cries out to God because of the sin that he sees in the world around him. You'll read how God responds to him and how Habakkuk responds back or what he thinks of God's response. And finally, at the end of this short book, you're going to see that not much changes for Habakkuk. His world does not change at all, but his perspective changes entirely, and that will make all the difference. Now this morning, as we engage with God's word, we're going to learn that as we cry out to God in a sinful world, God will judge the wicked, yet save those who are in Christ. Hear that again. As we cry out to God in a sinful world, God will judge the wicked, yet save those who are in Christ. Can we pray before we go on? Let's bow our heads. God, you are such a good God, and we are so grateful that we have your word, that we don't have to stumble through this world, through a broken, sinful world. But you have shown us the way. So as we sit under the teaching of your word, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open up our hearts and that we would hear from you, that you would change us where we need to be changed, that you would encourage us where we ought to be encouraged, and you would lift us up. We pray all the while that we would see Jesus and that we would know you more. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Let's dig in. So who was Habakkuk? 
We find the answer right away in verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. He is referred to as Habakkuk the prophet. Now, we would also call him a minor prophet and put him in the same category as some other Old Testament prophets like Nahum or Micah or Malachi and a few others. Now, if any of you are wondering what makes uh, Habakkuk a minor prophet, what makes some of these minor prophets, it's not because of their, the relevance of their message that makes them a minor prophet, and it's not even about the lack of importance of their message. It's really about the length of their message. So as I mentioned earlier, Habakkuk's book is about three chapters. Compare that with some of the other major prophets like Isaiah, whose book is 66 uh, chapters long, or a prophet named Jeremiah, who had 52 chapters in his book. And we don't read many references of Habakkuk throughout the Bible, so there's not much information about him. Some commentaries tell us that he was a temple musician, and that kind of makes sense, because as we read chapters later on, we'll see that he has a very poetic way of writing. We also read in verse 1 that this book is an oracle that Habakkuk saw. Some versions use the term burden instead of oracle. Now, prophets in Old Testament times were God's messengers to his people. Some of them even saw visions about how God would punish his people for their disobedience or how he would deliver them from bondage. And in Habakkuk, we're going to read the burden that the prophets saw that the God had for the people of Judah and the plan that he had for them. So let's keep reading. Verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look for at wrong? Now what's going on here? Have you ever walked into the middle of a tense conversation and wondered what's going on? Well, this passage sort of feels like that. We get, up, we get caught up in a conversation that Habakkuk is having with God. And sensing from the verses we just read, there is some tension in the air. Now, who is Habakkuk talking about and why is he so upset? In order to understand any conversation, we need some kind of context. So let's try and get an idea of what's going on. Now, in the Old Testament, we read the story of how God had chosen and set apart the nation of Israel as his own. They were his people, his covenant people. He established a covenant with them. If they obeyed and kept his commands, they would remain his treasured possession. But if they turned away from him, they would be punished. Blessings would accompany their obedience, but disobedience would be punished with curses and judgment. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we see a pattern of God's people walking away from him to chase after idols. And God, through his prophets, kept calling out to them, repent, come back to me. But when they ignored him, he gave them over into their, into their sin. And God sometimes used other nations to punish them. Now, the nation of Israel had a long line of kings. Some of them, like a king named David in the Old Testament, was a wonderful king who followed after God. Now, he was in no means perfect, but 
he kept returning back to God. Other kings were wicked, and they wanted nothing to do with God's law. Habakkuk's oracle is possibly written right after the period of a king named Josiah. Josiah was a godly, righteous king. And when he came into power, he repaired God's temple, which was falling apart at that time. And then they found the book of the law, or what we would know, I guess, as the Bible as we have it now. They found it, and when he read God's law, he realized how far away the nation had turned away from God, and he wept and repented, and he asked his people to do the same. He restored worship back in the land of Judah, and, it's, and there was a period of spiritual revival in the land. Now, unfortunately, that didn't last long. The nation of Egypt went to war with Judah, and King Josiah was killed. The Egyptians put Josiah's son Jehoiakim into power. Say that name five times. Jehoiakim into power. Now, if Josiah was a godly, humble king, Jehoiakim was anything but that. King Jehoiakim oppressed his own people by taxing them so that he could take that money and give it to the pharaoh of Egypt. He was so evil that when the prophet Jeremiah opened up the law and read a prophecy against King Jehoiakim in his court, Jehoiakim took God's law and threw it into the fire. Can you imagine the seriousness of that? Imagine someone taking our Bible and throwing it into the fire. And that's exactly what happened. Such contempt. Under his reign, the people of Judah turned back to idolatry. And this was, again, a rebellious time period for Judah. And it's in this time period that we find the prophet crying out to God. So let's keep reading. Again, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Do you hear the two questions in these verses? How long, O Lord, shall I cry and you will not hear? You will not save. And why, O Lord, do you make me see iniquity? Why are you not doing anything? There is destruction, contention, strife, violence, wickedness all around. Why don't you care? You know, as I mentioned this book, the way it's presented to us, it seems like a tense conversation is going on. Listen to this question. How long shall I cry for help? And the nature of this question itself implies that he has been calling out to God for some time. Has it been weeks? Has it been months? Years? We don't know. But to the prophet, it seems like a long time. Friends, do Habakkuk's cries seem foreign to us? Is this really an ancient book for an ancient people for a different time? Or does it resonate with us more than we realize? Habakkuk seemed so unfiltered, raw, 
honest before God. And he doesn't seem to care or be scared that God will strike him down. You know, as Colleen mentioned, I have two children, Hannah and Micah. Hannah is eight and Micah is five. Now, if you've been around children, if you have children, if you've seen or interacted with children, you'll know what I'm talking about. They like to ask questions. My Hannah especially does. And they like to ask questions over and over again. Mom, can I have this cookie? No, Hannah, you cannot have this cookie. And in three minutes again, Mom, now can I have this cookie? Uh, no, Hannah, you cannot have this cookie. And I want to be certain that she will probably ask me that again the next minute. Now, why is it that she can come to me without the fear that I'm going to strike her down? Why is it? Because she knows who I am. She knows I'm her mother, and she knows that she can be safe with me. And that's what it was like for Habakkuk. He knew who God was. He could go to God unfiltered, raw, honest, without the fear of being struck down. So what is Habakkuk in turmoil over? Why is he so upset? Listen to his lament in verse 3. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk sees violence and lawlessness all around him. He complains that sin abounds and justice never goes forth. And if it does, it's perverted. The law that God had established years ago with his people is useless. By the way, do you know who Habakkuk is complaining about? It's not about the pagans in the land. It's not about the Gentiles who don't know God. It's about God's own people, his covenant people. And Habakkuk is broken over their sins. Habakkuk is angry that God's people have turned away from him. There is injustice and corruption in the family of God. And the law that God gave through Moses, Habakkuk says, and he uses the word paralyzed, powerless, incapacitated. The law was meant to govern the people, and it has no value. Judah is being ruled by godless kings. The wicked people were taking advantage of the few righteous people who were trying to follow God's law. And to top it all off, Habakkuk is not happy because he thinks God is doing absolutely nothing. God is being passive while destruction and violence are all around. Judah has become morally and spiritually corrupt, and God seems absent. Habakkuk cannot understand how God can be silent through all of this. Now, just recently, Ajay and I, we were watching some YouTube video clips. Two well-known preachers were sitting around a table and justifying their need for their own private jets, $20 million jets. 
And they said that they needed these private jets in order to reach more people for the kingdom of God. They said that they, don't, they didn't have time to stand like other people in long lines at an airport. And where does the money come from for these $20 million jets? It comes from people around the world who have barely any money, except these preachers promised them that if they empty their life savings and give generously, God will bless them a hundredfold for giving to them and to their ministries. Really? How long will these men prosper, O oh God, with their wrong theology and their deceptive ways? Have you found yourself asking, how long, O oh Lord? How long will you allow your, your people to be persecuted around the world? How long will you let wickedness continue? Violence is rampant in our schools today more than it ever was. Immorality and blatant disobedience to God's word are chalked up to be part of societal and cultural norms. Our society will prosecute someone who brings to light the horrors of how precious unborn babies are destroyed, the righteous being persecuted while wrongdoers go free. Maybe you don't ask all these questions about the world we live in, but have you found yourself wondering this about your own life? For some of you, do you find yourself crying out, how long, O oh Lord, will I suffer from this agony of depression? How long will the season of loneliness last? How long will you allow me to suffer from this physical pain which does not let me function daily? Why do you allow cancer? Why, oh Lord, won't you do something? Why won't you save? Do you find yourself broken over your own sins? Do you hear God calling you to repent? Or do you find your heart hardened towards him? Friends, who do you turn to with life's hardest questions? Habakkuk shows us that when life is hard, which it is, and it can be, we can go to God honestly with our pain. The Bible gives us permission to tell God that life is hard. But is God really absent? Where is he in the middle of all this? Now this is the exciting part. The book starts off with Habakkuk's lament. Now here comes God's answer. Ready? Let's read verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. How awesome is it when God answers? You know what's incredible? God does not owe anybody an answer. He does not owe Habakkuk an explanation. 
But how wonderful is it that the God of the universe, the God who created the heavens and the earth, should care for someone like Habakkuk? We barely know anything about this man, but God cares enough about him to answer him. Now let's consider God's response. He says, look, see, wonder, be astounded, for I am doing something. For behold, I am raising someone. God has already been working, even though Habakkuk is not aware of it. Again, friends, if this book seems foreign to us, like it's an ancient book for a different people, isn't this the message we need to hear today? That God is at work at times when we don't even realize or see it. That when God seems silent, when he seems distant, he is doing, he is raising. So how is God going to do all of this? Is he going to judge his people or is he going to save them? Well, let's read. In verse 6, God says, For behold, I am raising the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the, through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So here's God's response. I am going to raise up the Chaldeans. If you're wondering who are the Chaldeans, perhaps some of you are more familiar with the name Babylonians. Who were the Babylonians? And Habakkuk perhaps knew something about them already. Now, the Egyptian and Assyrian empires, which had been in control for many years, were losing control, and the Babylonian nation was becoming the new superpower. The Babylonians were known for their ruthlessness. They were a pagan, godless nation, and they certainly did not care about God's laws. They determined justice as they chose. And they moved quickly, and they plundered and destroyed their enemies. As the ESV study Bible puts it, Habakkuk had seen violence in Judah, but the Babylonians took it to a whole new level. Now look at their MO in verse 7. Let's read the next few verses. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Now that's a fierce description. Just in case Habakkuk didn't hear enough, God has more to tell him. He keeps going in verse 10. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Do you hear that? They're godless, dreadsome. They're like fierce animals. They laugh and they mock at the ones they conquer. Now, if Habakkuk thought Jehoiakim was corrupt, if he thought Judah was morally and spiritually bankrupt, then the Chaldeans and Babylonians were infinitely worse. And God was raising up this horrible nation 
to destroy and to conquer Judah. That was God's answer. Was God going to judge them, or was he going to save them? Now, God makes it quite clear that he was going to send judgment upon them through the Babylonians. Just to help you understand the gravity of this, it's like if Christians heard today that Jesus is raising up ISIS to bring the godless back to him. Sounds unbelievable, right? Crazy, impossible, unjust. Let that sink in. And that's exactly how it sounded like to Habakkuk. And we will hear later today when Katie teaches us on the next passage what, God, what Habakkuk thinks about God's response and how he's going to respond, to respond to God. So let's unpack this a little further. So Habakkuk honestly pours out his heart to God for what seemed to him like a long time. He laments over the wickedness of God's people. And God does respond. But his answer makes absolutely no sense to Habakkuk. It leaves him utterly confused. Sure, God, I know. I told you your people are wicked. But you're going to use the Babylonians to punish them? I know they deserve your judgment. But why would you use a nation far more wicked than them to punish them? Now, if I were Habakkuk and I heard God's response, I would have been upset, wouldn't you? Ladies, every story in the Bible ultimately points us back to who God is. It teaches us about his unchanging nature. It reminds us about his sovereignty. And all things work ultimately together for his glory. His ultimate goal is to redeem and to bring us back to himself. And he will use ways that are unimaginable to us. Sometimes he will even use ways that make no sense to us. In the midst of this world, filled with sufferings, sometimes you have probably have heard people who don't know God ask, why would a good God allow this? Why doesn't he do something? Now, I don't want to make this sound like a question only asked by people who don't know God. If you were honest, have you found yourself in that place? Have you ever asked, why would you do that, Lord? Why does it have to be this way? Surely you can find another way. Why does it have to be through cancer? Why does it have to be through my miscarriage? Why through my broken marriage? If these are questions you have asked, take heart, dear friend, because you can take your honest questions to God. He does not chastise. Instead, the God of the universe the same God who answered Habakkuk's questions and his pleas. He is the same God who cares to listen to you, and he will answer. 
Friends, we do live in a sinful world. We are a sinful people. We feel the effects of sin. We sin against each other. We sin against God. And God hates sin. And sin must be judged. And we deserve God's judgment. God, in his kindness, heard Habakkuk and chose to answer him. And in his great love for us, he chose to hear our cries also. He did the unthinkable. From the beginning of time, the overarching cry of God's covenant of people has been this. How long, O Lord? And they waited for hundreds of years for the Messiah, for the king who would finally deliver them. And God was going to do it in a way that they wouldn't believe if they were told. God answered their cries by sending his son to our messed up, broken world. God had a plan all along to rescue and to save his people. When God used the Babylonians, a pagan, wicked nation, to punish Judah, it made no sense to Habakkuk. Why would God use Judah or judge Judah by using a far more wicked nation? But do you know what was far more unthinkable, unbelievable? It was when God used a wicked, godless people, the Romans, and his own covenant people, and he allowed them to crucify his perfect, sinless son. Hear that, my friends. Jesus, perfect and sinless, took on the judgment that we deserved. When Jesus was crucified, God wasn't surprised. He wasn't caught off guard as it all unfolded. But it was part of his sovereign plan all along. God allowed his son to die so that we might live. In fact, when God's people saw Jesus lying bloodied, naked, crucified as an outcast on that tree, they didn't believe it. Surely God didn't raise up this man to be our deliverer. But he did come. He did die. And in three days he rose again. Unbelievable. Unthinkable. You wouldn't believe it if you were told. Does life seem hard? Does a journey sometimes seem long and dark? Then go to God with an honest heart. If you're in a season where your heart has been hardened by sin, hardened towards God, then repent, turn to him. You don't have to live in sin any longer. God is gracious to save, and he has justified you through the death of his son. Does God ever seem absent? Don't lose hope, because remember that even when you can't see it, he is doing, he is working, he is moving. Ask him to give you eyes of faith so that you would behold and be astounded. Remember that friend that I mentioned earlier when I first started, whose story I've told you about? 
I recently received an email from her. Here's what she wrote. The Lord has given me a visual image of my life. I am floating down a current of molten lava. The ground beneath me is constantly shifting, and I'm jumping from safe rock to safe rock. But I am not alone. The Lord himself shows me which rock to jump to, and he keeps my foot from stumbling. I never know two steps in advance. Things keep shifting too much. But he shows me each step as it comes, and he has never failed me yet. She goes on to write, Molten lava is indeed dangerous, but when it slows and cools and forms islands of safety, those islands become incredibly fertile, growing the luscious veg vegetation. An igneous rock can be incredibly strong and durable. This current of lava is not just the enemy. It is growing me, changing me. God has good purposes even in the lava. Thank you, Lord. Do what you will. Does what God is doing in your life seem to make no sense? Then, dear friend, turn your gaze and look at the cross because there your God, your Savior, made the greatest good come from what looked like the most unimaginable, senseless, hopeless evil. As we cry out to God in a sinful world, God will graciously respond to our cries. He will judge the wicked, the wicked, yet save those in Christ. He is moving. He is working. And he will save. Let's pray. God, how wonderful is your word. Lord, we are reminded through this word today that we do live in a sinful world, that even as Habakkuk cried out, we can come to you and cry out to you in our brokenness. Help us, Lord, for those of us who have turned away, that we would turn towards you and repent, and that we would find our hope, and that we would be justified in Jesus alone. For those of us who are questions and doubts, for those of us who are asking how long. Help us, Lord, to see you and to know that you are working, that you are moving. Give us eyes of faith to see. And for those who, to whom life does not make sense, would you help us to see the cross where Jesus was crucified and it made no sense. But because of you, Jesus, we have life and we have hope. And you did it so that we might live. Be with us today, O oh Lord, and give us your hope and fill us with your joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us. Um, we're going to be singing about God's deep and great love for us uh, in light of the message that we just heard.